Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. If you are a dog walker or a dog trainer who is sick and tired of dealing with inquiries from clients whose first question is always how much do you charge? And if you struggle to attract the type of high quality clients your amazing skills deserve, then you need to check out my good friend Dom Hodgson's pet business bible, Walk Yourself Wealthy, which is available from Amazon and Audible. In this book, you will discover how to charge premium prices without losing clients and have dog owners beating down your door to use your services. How to legitimately market yourself as the celebrity pet expert in your town and how to use your personality in your marketing to push away tire-kicking price buyers and attract only the best clients who are the perfect fit for you and your business, and how to easily stand out from the competition by having a signature service that is unique to you. I've read the book myself. I love how concise it is. Dom has really focused on the things that make the biggest difference. So you can get a copy yourself of Walk Yourself Wealthy and Dom's other books from Amazon or Audible. And if you live in the UK, you can see Dom in action as he begins the 2019 tour of his worry-free walks and Grow Your Pet Business Fast seminars. Go to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com and click on the events tab to find a seminar near you. I've also recently started to offer online consultations through Skype through Facebook Messenger. Um, So these consultations will be uh, video format. So we'll essentially be talking to each other online, talking about anything that you're really struggling with. I mean, I've had a wide range of people that are interested from uh, just dog owners to uh, professional dog trainers to people that are studying to be professional dog trainers. So if you're interested in that, you can book a session with me by going to nickbenger.com slash book. Um, I'm not sure how long I'm going to do this for. This is a bit of experiment for me, so uh, jump on that quick, and hopefully, hopefully it, this experiment works out. I, I've been happy with the response so far, so things are looking pretty good. Today, I'm talking to Laura Monaco Torelli. Laura worked at the legendary Shed Aquarium for nearly a decade, and now she runs Animal Behavior Training Concepts in Chicago and gives talks around the world. She's well known for her work training animals for husbandry procedures, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, so let's get into it. To begin with, thank you for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for hosting me. One of the things that has caught my attention straight away when I started finding out who you were is you have just had the most amazing way in, like with all of the marine animal stuff. And originally it was through conservation, wasn't it? And then the shed aquarium with Ken. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've done your research. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think... Um, a theme, and 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 maybe you you know heard this on the um, uh, Ryan and I were joking about the hop over to Hannah podcast um, when he and I were chatting, and that this is such a like such a small community, and in a really good way, that 
I look at my career as a series of really exciting opportunities that I was like, sure, why not? You know, let's let's see what I could learn from mentoring with, you know, with this group of people or with this individual. Um, so, yeah, I did. I did start with um, volunteering for a, a field research project through the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program. Um, if people want to go to sarasotadolphin.org, that's uh, the work with Dr. Randy Wells um, and his team of conservation biologists. And it's the longest running study of a population of wild um, dolphins in the world. And uh, the amount of, of research and different threads that he brings in with his colleagues that have different disciplines of scientific interest is fascinating. And so um, when I was a young pup, I volunteered there for the first time in 1991. And one of the marine mammal veterinarians that were part of that, that conservation project was actually one of the marine mammal veterinarians at Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. And uh, they had just opened the new Oceanarium. And then it was a series of events and then started volunteering there. Ken Ramirez was my first animal training mentor and now my boss again through Karen Pryor Academy. So never burn a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very fortunate. <laughs> no, I'm sure that you uh, you got on great there. Um, it, one thing that stood out from um, hearing and, and doing that a bit more, a bit of research about you is you were talking about how important work, work ethic is. And although it seems like tremendously lucky that you just the way you tell it is, is almost like you just kind of fell into the hands of like people like Ken, who, you know, is regarded as one of the best animal trainers in the world. Um, yeah, but, yeah, but it sounds yeah. like you, you, you know, you put in a lot of work volunteering to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, when I look back at it and, 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 it, and it's interesting because as I look at you, but then I scan and I look around my desk I have all of these photos and and cards and memorabilia of my career, like you know, like like sea otter pup and and beluga whales and and letters from individuals within conservation biology, where they are the ones that really discuss that that hard work ethic. Um, and, you know, having that level of, of, of grit and resilience, because, as you know, this, this is a very competitive um, community to break into as far as whatever area of, of species that we're interested in. And so early on, I learned a lot from observing from the conservation biology and the field researchers, the amount of... <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears that they're putting into to their master's degree or if they go into a PhD dissertation or then if they want more abuse and they go into their postdoc. Um, for those of us that want to continue within the animal training community, who do we want to mentor with? What programs do we want to apply to? And these are our mentors that are there to show us, but then we have to do the work and as Ken always says, we need a balance of the book smarts and the hands-on, and that's a good complement. So, you know, my, my earliest memories are, even though I, 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 when I was hired as a marine mammal trainer, um, 
you know, Ken was like, you're not going to be working hands-on with the animals right away, but here's a book called Don't Shoot the Dog by Kieran Pryor. This is, you know, 20, 28 years ago. And he said, we're, we're going to have quizzes. So read this chapter and we're going to meet in a week and we're going to talk about terminology and application. I want you to make observations from the senior trainers that I pair you up with. And we're going to have conversations about what you observe with the sea otter's behavior, with the dolphin's behavior. And it just, it was that early mentorship about uh, keen observation, just watching the most subtle things in the animal's body language um, and ours, because we need to be comfortable working with animals, right? You know, even dogs. Dogs have a, a, a beautiful dialogue, but if a dog is fearful and the handler is fearful of the fearful dog, oh, yeah, it's just been, it is, it is, it is a lot of hard work. How, how do those uh, two worlds mesh, the kind of conservation of marine mammals and the uh, aquarium world? Do those two go together kind of hand in hand? Because I don't know anything about this world, being a dog trainer, but... As someone on the outside, over the last however many years, probably the last 10 years, I guess, I don't know, there's all of this, like, there's a lot, of, there's been a rise in people that are anti-marine mammal, aren't there, in captivity, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on that, being so heavily involved yeah. in it, and having seen both sides, right, having seen them in the wild, yeah. and seen them in captivity. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's that's an excellent question, and I really enjoy a good meaty, calm dialogue when we want to talk about, um, anyone wants to discuss their feelings about whether or not animals should be in zoos and aquariums. Sometimes you have individuals that might go so far as to have arguments against, you know, dogs being in shelters. Um, the good news as animal lovers is we're very passionate about loving animals. Um, but in order to have productive discussions, there needs to be um, a mutual respect for each other to be able to sit at the table and have that discussion without it becoming contentious mm -hmm. and finger pointing about right or wrong. And with my career, starting with observing marine mammals in the wild, which I've continued to volunteer for that program since uh, Dr. Wells and his team continue to do amazing work. Um, there's, there should be a keen awareness about human impact with wild environment. And uh, Ken does such an eloquent job of marrying conservation work with zoos and aquariums with what he's doing in the field, you know, whether it be the great work he's recently done with elephants in the wild um, the work that he's done with helping save sea turtle nests in the wild, using dogs to scent the nests to move them after an oil spill. It's, I guess it's my. Uh, I guess that was kind of uh, part of the question as well, because there's there is seemingly again looking from the outside, there seems to be a crossover there. Like you just mentioned, some of the things that Ken's doing with conservation, as and I know you have as well. So I was wondering how those two worlds mesh. You know, is that. Yeah. Is there a lot of collaboration? What's the situation there? Yeah, well, you know, I don't have all the answers about who's collaborating where. Um, 
but I think it all swings back to the science of not just learning, um, but the science that goes behind educating ourselves about species. You know, there's so much great work going on about canine cognition and canine research and looking at our colleagues that are very active in the dog community that have advanced degrees that are doing amazing work and bridging that back to how behavior modification stems into the biology of the dog and natural history and looking at all of these pieces of the puzzle to help us know that every time new information unfolds and we get data, that we need to be flexible with that. And we need to be flexible with our current knowledge base and move with it. Um, Dr. Susan Friedman does such an eloquent job of talking about you know, um, applied behavior analysis and being flexible with when we get new information that we, we are flexible in our application. So with my background coming from working with exotic animals, I've seen so much of the work within the conservation biology area and bringing that into education, um, educating the public about the natural history and what's happening with wild populations and work that we need to do to ensure that we're not continually depleting what's natural resources in the wild. So, because we're not going to have an environment where tigers are going to be able to flourish or elephants are going to be able to flourish if we don't bring in the, this knowledge base that we're getting from reputable zoos and aquariums. Yeah, and, you know and, that. And, and I was worried. I was um, thinking about that as well. Because obviously we were talking about husbandry today and, you know, people that listen to this podcast are thinking about dogs. But I was, you know, yeah. it must have all started for you with the uh, animals that you worked with uh, at Shed. Can you repeat that question again? I'm sorry. I, I said, so, so many people, so many people associate husbandry with dogs because that's the nature of this podcast. But it must yeah, have all yeah. started for you with working at Shed right, and, and doing husbandry there. So I was curious about um, what, you've, what you've taken from that world into this world. You know, what are the differences there or what are the similarities? Yeah, yeah. Um, great question, and there are so many. Um, in fact, I was talking with one of, one of my local vets here in Chicago the other day when we were um, – getting a blood draw on Vito, our little tomorrow six-month-old Ridgeback puppy. And, uh, and you know, I, I asked the vet, you know, I, I want to be present when you take his blood. And this is why. And I have a can of Easy Cheese and treats. And, and our vet and the vet team said, you know, absolutely. And um, it went wonderfully, thankfully. And I mentioned to um, Dr. Gonski um, at West Loop Veterinary Care, I said, you know, thank you so much for being flexible. Um, this reminds me so much of where I started as a marine mammal trainer about collaborating with vets. And I have to tell you, Nick, what, you know when you're talking to someone, but you could tell they're not really present listening to you. They're kind of looking over your shoulder, looking at everything else, but kind of doing like the bobblehead, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. Right, because we're really good observers. And, you know, I just could passion talk, and, you know, I love my puppy and all this stuff. And 
And as I was saying this, I could tell that Dr. Gonski was present. He was listening to what I was saying. And I said, you know, um, I was lucky enough to be invited to speak at AVMA, which is the American Veterinary Medical Association, this summer, me, Laura. And I had mentioned that to him. Uh, and I said, I'm going to be teaching four presentations. Can I start to videotape what we're doing here as a teaching tool at this vet conference? And he's like, absolutely. We are, you know, we have nothing to hide. And then I told him about my first experience, which you probably heard, I think it was Hannah's podcast, about um, my early experiences as a marine mammal trainer and Dr. Jeff Bohm, who is a marine mammal vet. He now oversees the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California. It's a a rehab facility for stranded um, seals, sea lions, um, and other marine life. So this must have been, I don't know, the summer of 92, summer of 1993. And Dr. Bohm is standing next to me with his vet tech, and they have their vet box. And he said, we're going to be doing a voluntary blood draw on Cree the dolphin. I got her in position, and he leaned over, and he said, are you and Cree ready for me to insert the needle? And it was this moment, Nick, of like, you're asking if, if we're ready? He's like, yeah, I, well, I used to be a trainer before I was a vet. And I think that that early aha moment of slowing down a procedure and making sure that everyone, not just the animal, but the handler, that was a, a, like this early light bulb moment for me. And I'm like, well, now I know I can hire you. <laughs> so, you know, that was such a, a light bulb moment early in my career about, when I since left Shed to go to San Diego Zoo and then Brookfield Zoo was making sure that when we are training new trainers is to say, you know, hey, Nick, um, here's a tiger that you're going to eventually be training. We're working um, on your checkoff list. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling working with this animal? What are uh, some... Um, I'm running in know, the other direction. <laughs> yeah, like, right? I work with dogs, not tigers. <laughs> You know what? Hey, Nick, here, you know, and this is this is what I deal with day to day now with 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 my client base. They have a dog that growls Uh when they show them the muzzle, but the vet is asking them to muzzle train the dog. And and I'll ask the client, how how do you feel about being asked to put a muzzle on the dog? And and they're going like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. I am so scared. Mm -hmm. Right? That, that that's our job did you, did it, is to help. Did it seem almost easy going from uh, going from tigers and whales and all that kind of stuff to uh, to dogs? No, it was it was um, you know full transparency, full full disclosure. The biggest challenge for me was. I have a client and their dog for maybe one hour a week. Maybe. If I'm lucky, maybe two. Um, And our job is to present the information that we have and the smallest digestible success points. But when they leave, I have no idea what's happening. I don't know what they're practicing unless they update me or they send me videos. Um, So... The biggest challenge for me 
was going from a zoo and aquarium model where there are, you know, primary trainers that are trained, um, that are assigned and cleared to train this. We know how much the animal eats and at what time. And then we have backup trainers and then they're cleared to do this and we have extensive record keeping. So to go from that model and look at the amount of progress that we could make from a staff continuing education perspective and the animal's progress to the average dog owner was difficult for me to, to not have that as much information. So when I would email a client and say, hey, I'm just touching base, how are things going? Um, I had to learn to be flexible with what the average dog owner is able to do because they are just that. They're not advanced trainers like we are. They're the average dog owner looking at us and saying, I just don't want my dog to jump on the counter when I cook a meal. And you and I could, could, treat, could do like a training triage right away and go, oh my gosh, we could do a DRI or a DRO of a differential reinforcement, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the owner just needs to hear, your first goal is to teach your dog perhaps an incompatible behavior of going on a mat or management. But then we don't know what they're doing when we're not around. So that's kind of my long answer of it was a big it was a big challenge for me. Yeah, well, it's interesting there because you go you now we're sneaking into uh, uh, the methodology, which of course is going to change, but the principles will remain the same, I would imagine. So, um, I again, you know, tell me if this is this is right, but it seems like with dogs, the the kind of challenges that we come across a lot are tend to be the same, right? Like ear cleaning, nail trimming, like muzzling, like the, the tasks seem to be uh, relatively similar. Or those are the kind of things that people tend to complain about or, or they need to achieve. So how, how do you go about achieving those things? Oh, What's the process? This great question. Um, so much of it swings back to what changes are the owners willing to make and you know um hopefully you're familiar with Teresa McKeon from Tag Teach International she's fantastic uh -huh. and Teresa does such a great job of explaining how we build success points from the human end and I've learned and thank thank goodness for being flexible as we get older and more mature in our career but I'm very transparent with my with my dog training client base. And so someone contacts me, they want me to help them with their dog. And I will say kindly right off the bat, um, are you willing to change some of your habits to help change the environment to change behavior? And I let that question linger and I let them think about it. Because sometimes um, we want our dog's behavior to change, but we don't want to change our behavior. And so we have a frustrated dog who's just being a dog. I mean, they're dogs. They do dog things. But how could we help the dog owner look at it from let's do one or two changes in the environment 
for you and your dog. So for you, are you willing to put a bag of treats by the front door in a bag near your dog's leash? That, that's it. That's all I'm asking. And I give it a week, you know, to let them practice it. And that's where I found that having that small success point, um, and this is something I'll be talking about at, at Clicker Expo next month. Uh, I'll be teaching a lab, a couple labs. Um, because we might want the dog's behavior to change, but if the owners aren't going to change the environment to change behavior, then we're banging our, our head on a wall going, oh, and then, I just call it cursed money. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm not the best trainer for you. Um, so why don't you research other trainers? Yeah, it's, and it's like the best feeling just, 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 just to say, you know. know uh, it's like you kind of pre-qualify yeah, I, your, your uh, customers, which it seems like good business practice. Anyway, I guess. Um, so lots of different husbandry procedures have become extremely popular over the last few years. Um, I think they all center around what you said earlier, which was usually uh, DRI, in my experience. So, um, for example, uh, getting the dog to do a chin rest or getting the dog to do a sustained hand touch or getting the dog to stare at the bucket in the case of Chirag's uh, um, procedure. So is that is that the way that you usually approach things? Um. Another good question, and it's such a, you know, as, as I've mentioned in other, in other podcasts, is husbandry is such a thick, meaty, dense topic. And I start from husbandry being from what I learned from Ken early on is every interaction that we have with the animal is husbandry. It is animal care. It is animal training. By the time a dog becomes fearful of a muzzle or fearful of tactile near the head, there's specific context cues that now have aversive or punishing associations. So now we have a dog owner coming to us with a dog that is, um, has such an aversive association, but, they, but they're looking for a quick fix, so, so to speak. So one of the things that, um, like with my Ready, Set for Groomer and Vet program, I launched that about 10, 11 years ago now. It's, it's been out there for a while. And... There are other amazing trainers that have been talking about dog husbandry long before I was 10 years ago. Like Kathy Sedeo has great resources on her website. Um, Dr. Karen Overall, you know, and then it just it just dominoes from there. Um, Dr. Sophia Yin and so many other great individuals. Uh, it it just stems back to every interaction that we have weaves into husbandry. So something as simple as the dog coming in front of us should be reinforced. Showing them equipment, they get reinforced. Mm -hmm. Our hands putting their collar on them is husbandry. Because mm -hmm. where are the hands going? Near their head. They're right there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I enjoy breaking down is when a client comes to me and says, um, my dog is nervous about me cleaning their ear. Mm -hmm. And so... One of the things that I do is, um, and this is from my mentor as well, Dr. Friedman, always get baseline video within ethical parameters. So I'll say, you know what? Why don't you show me what you mean? I'm going to run a one-minute loop of video at the most. I'm holding, I'm holding my phone because I videotape off of my phone. 
and I say, show me the baseline without, you know, it, but if you think you're going to get bit, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Like, do not show me if, if, if someone's going to get injured. Um, and then I review that one minute loop and I send it to the client and I, and I talk them through what I see and I'll say, um, you're trying to clean your dog's ear, but your dog was already demonstrating avoidance behavior the moment that you knelt to the ground. And the eloquent thing about acquiring distance is it's an excellent coping strategy to keep stressful events from escalating. So um, I'd like to give this example. Okay. You're at a family party. Uh-huh. Okay. The cousin that you can only take 10 minutes of a year is going to be there. You've had your 10 minutes with that cousin, so you get up and you go in the other room. You're creating space to keep yourself below threshold so you don't start screaming at your cousin. <laughs> okay. Right? So you go to the other room. You create space. Oh, you breathe a little bit easier. You're around other family members that you have more of a positive association with. But then you turn around, and that cousin now comes in the room and is doing a direct approach at you. They might have their finger in your face going, Nick, how come you left me? Why are you walking away? And this is how family fights break out. Because you tried to create space as a coping strategy to keep yourself below threshold. Um, but then your cousin followed you and things escalated. And that's something that I'll see even in the vet office is the dog and the owner are put in an exam room and the door is closed. So the dog and the owner have no way out. The vet team walk in, one, two, three people, and you see the dog take a step back. And that subtlety of creating space wasn't observed. In fact, it got punished because what does the vet staff do next? They step into the dog. So the dog learned backing away didn't get me hurt. You know what? I'm going to growl now. So the dog growls, but the vet staff punished it by still reaching for the dog. So the dog now, you know, air snaps. So it seems that's, it seems like there's a lot of focus on counter conditioning, right? Forming positive associations, but doing so in a way that you're making sure that you split it very fine, and you're observing you're observing the the baseline, right? To to observe when when you're going to likely to push the dog over threshold. Is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So and so. I mean, and then you were talking about, um, like people have been doing husbandry training for years and years and years, but yeah, of course, of course, but but the big change that I've seen more recently is previously there seemed to be a a real focus on just almost pure counter conditioning desensitization, right? Like the dog is in front of you. Uh, maybe obviously this is just make it, I'm just making this up. You know, you, you pick up the nail clippers, (laughs) you get a dog treat. You put the nail clippers a little bit closer, you get the dog treat, and as long as the dog is relatively happy, then you continue to increase your criteria. Whereas more recently, there is we've taken like a real dif- uh, differential reinforcement like turn in the in course, and it's it the I've I feel like there's been like a real change towards differential reinforcement over just a pure counter conditioning model, and. There are people that I've spoke to that, that prefer the pure counter-conditioning way of doing things. 
personally, I've I've tried both, and, and I actually quite like diff- differential reinforcement just because I feel like it's easier for me to do the husbandry training if the dog's doing a behaviour that is kind of um, what, what would the word be it makes it easy for me. You know, if the dog's got his head in my hand, then he's in the great position for me to uh, uh, look him over or, or whatever I want to do. I'm curious if you have a, a preference and why. Oh, you know, oh, man, that is such a good question. Um, I see the benefit in all of it. I don't think it's black or white either way. And um, here's hopefully one, not one, here's some discussion as to why. So uh, I have a new client this week whose dog is scared about having his nails trimmed. And the the dog is nowhere near offering... um, let's say a chin rest or laying on its side or filing its own nails on a nail board. They're not at that level of building a strong enough reinforcement history um, to move the behavior forward. So at the beginning, maybe counter conditioning and desensitization is our window in while we're teaching other things in different contexts like, um, uh, like I've been using a chin rest for years. However, and I just put a video of me working with Dini, the the quit the the, the adorable pit bull. Um, the other day, I was working on trimming her nails, and uh, I cued her layout, which is for her to lay on her side. And the reason I didn't cue her chin rest is we were just outside playing, so she was panting. And if I cued her chin rest. Um, I didn't want to set her up to not be able to uh, regulate her respiratory mm-hmm. needs. So if I cue the chin rest and her mouth is closed and she's going <laughs> like that, yeah, yeah, you can sure. see my face uh-huh. there. So I thought, you know what, why don't we do your layout? And then I worked on making sounds of trimming a pasta noodle. And then I went to her dew claw and then I was able to trim a dew claw. Um, I think that this weaves back to why husbandry is such a meaty, dense topic is it's not black and white. Um, I think there, there's so many skilled trainers out there doing so many great things with husbandry, um, whatever that is, whether it's husbandry of teaching the dog to put their clothes on, you know, to put a collar on, to put a harness on, to put a leash on. That's all husbandry. Mm-hmm. That's all care. That's all teaching handling. Um, that's the subtlety where I like to launch from because then – I've noticed that things go more quickly versus us just trying to, we're really going to focus on this ear cleaning and the dog is saying, whoa, it's already punishing. And I said, you know what, show me what putting their collar looks like, you know, and then I build it from there. So when their hands are near the ears, putting the collar on, then we'll work on some successive approximations and then it goes boop, 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 boop. And then we see progress and then I'll ask the owners, you know, uh, what have you observed so far in our time today that's been helpful for you to practice when you go home? Hmm. And I let that question linger so they can tell me in their own percept, their own observation, their own words, I need to do more of this or I need to do more of that. I didn't realize that this tied into, I don't know, ear care. I think that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> it sounds like you, you use a mix of the two based on, well, of course, you can never get away from counter-conditioning, but uh, I'm talking about the, uh-huh. the difference between the pure counter-conditioning model of old versus a more differential reinforcement approach. 
And it sounds like you use yeah. a, a mixture of the two based on what the learner requires, I guess. Uh, yeah, and learner and learner animal and learner handler. Well, that's an interesting um, point because it's one of the cases that's made for a more differential reinforcement approach is, you know, people tend to be bad at reading their animal's body language. And so yeah. it, it, there's almost like a proofing element to it. You know, if, if I train a dog to put his chin in my hand and then the dog continually breaks that behavior, well, that's a sign that maybe the dog's uncomfortable. Um, whereas in the more pure kind of conditioning approach, people are having to observe the dog's behavior and then make sure they're not pushing the dog over threshold. So I think that some people have used it as almost a hack for um, dog owners that aren't able to or aren't very skilled at learning their dog's body language. Um, but what I find interesting that kind of came out of that is the discussion around choice. And to, I've, I, I've thought a lot about it. I just can't get my head around it because... To me, the dog has as much choice if it's in the chin rest position as it does if you're doing the traditional counter-conditioning approach, as provided you stop when the dog becomes uncomfortable, as you would in either approach. Sorry, I'm just going on around here. <laughs> no, you know what? This is great. I'm, I'm, I am like really enjoying this discussion, and uh, you know, I. Um, where was I recently that I talked? Oh, when I was overseas, I was in Japan teaching a husbandry seminar in December. And, you know, we're always editing our PowerPoints up until like the last moment, right? And I took a screenshot of one of my PowerPoint slides and I sent it to, to Dr. Friedman because she's one of my amazing mentors. And I said, I said, you know, um, one of the discussion points that I want to have at my seminar is how can we operationalize and describe consent? Because consent is a label. So Dr. Friedman would say, what does consent look like? Consent is a label. Happy is a label. And we got into this wonderful discussion back and forth at the seminar about what consent looks like, not just for the animal, but for the handler, and this is where I love using video as a tutorial because I will run video of my sessions with my clients or of me with my own animals, you know, um, Santino who's sawing logs behind me or Vito, our Ridgeback puppy, um, and I, I review that video and I will watch just me stop and then I'll just watch my animal stop and I'll watch the nuances of the body language and... Um, you know, this is, this is, I think, such an important discussion point of, of how, how, how do you as the individual describe consent, um, describe comfort level, right? You know, and then if I have a client who's holding their breath while they're holding the muzzle and their shoulders are up to here while they're holding it, and I'll say, um, do you feel comfortable working with the muzzle in front of your dog and they look at me with these wide mm -hmm. eyes and they're like, no, I'm really nervous because my dog has growled at me in the past. And I'll say, you know what, why don't we stop for a second and let's break down the steps for what you are comfortable doing right now in this part of the shaping plan. And I put the brakes on it because then 
aren't we flooding the handler with asking them to do too much? You'd be like, hey, Nick, here's a lion, and this is your first time working with him. And by the way, you got to get him on that scale through protected contact. And you're looking at me going, wait, can you just go back to the first step about a lion, right? Um, you know, with, with, with husbandry, with the... You know, we here we are, you know, you and I as skilled trainers mm. with years of mentorship under wonderful trainers. And we go to seminars and we teach seminars and we read and we are always increasing our knowledge base. But then I come to you. I'm Laura with a six month old Ridgeback who's scared of having his ears cleaned. And I want you to teach me how to get this ear medication in him right now. So we can get it like tomorrow. Mm. Whoa, there's a lot going on there. Right. I think that you opened a huge rabbit hole with the whole consent thing. <laughs> so uh, good. Yeah, that's an interesting topic yeah, in I itself mean, because. Uh, and I mean, hopefully in a good way. It's it's not, you know, this is. Oh, yeah. Rabbit hole. Well, I'm not going to end the call. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the consent thing is uh, interesting because, well, for a million different reasons, but. Firstly, the idea of consent would require the dog to understand the procedure, right? If if I have, say that I have an ear cleaning product in front of me, now, unless the dog has had repeated experience, the dog isn't, hasn't got a clue what is about to happen. So I'm questioning how the dog can consent to something it doesn't know what it is. And then the, the other question... Um, I've lost my train of thought. Well, why don't my we, of, let's why don't let's we, dig into that one. Yeah. So um, let me swing back and say that this is such a great discussion. And there are wonderful trainers. Um, hopefully some would put me in that category out there putting out really good work about what we're doing to help teach positive associations with the handler and trainer. Chirag is amazing. Um, I love the work that he does. And, um, you know, so many great trainers are doing so many great things in so many great areas. I think it's important to keep in perspective that husbandry is such a broad topic that as we look at what our shaping plans are, when you mention, you know, I have a dog in front of me who has ear cleaning solution. And he has no idea what's about to happen. Um, let let the science walk the walk. Let the learning associations and running through the antecedent behavior and consequence of each step in the procedure do do the work for us. And taking the time to really think about what's the antecedent or what's the cue. We always start with the goal behavior in that step in the approximation, and what's the consequence. So for my little boy, Vito, right now, I just have an ear cleaning bottle with gauze, and sometimes I'll saturate it with the solution, and I put it on the counter, and I'm training him to do play bows and spins and go to the mat and his crate. I don't even bring that gauze near his ear, but it's out, and I'm, he can smell it because he's ear scenting, and when he sniffs, I'll mark and reinforce, yes, there's a new smell on the counter. Yeah. What do you think about that? Then I'll hold the gauze in my hand without the ear cleaning solution. 
and I'll cue some fun tricks. How about your play bow? How about the spin? How about the go to mat? And he's like, but you're holding something new. I am. Look, yes, acknowledge it. Let your sensory system acknowledge there's something new. Hmm. What typically happens is we flood the handler and the owner by saying, Nick, your dog needs this eardrop. Here's the bottle. Here's how much he needs to get. Three times, I don't know, I'm just exaggerating maybe. Three times a day, go. Hmm. But it's the nuances of what we should do proactively. So when we need to do something that's potentially aversive, like put an eardrop or eye ointment on an area that already hurts, Hmm. yeah, sometimes, you know, um, a veterinary or grooming procedure might be aversive. The needle has to break the skin barrier, Hmm. right? But this is where we build up practice, practice, practice. Uh, I, so if if I were your trainer, I'd say, how often do you run through just exposing mm-hmm. your dog to the ear cleaning solution without actually going near their ear? Well, I, I see how this is great training. Like that all sounds like uh, great training practice. I guess where the question lies is, are you, you know, that sounds like uh, kind of conditioning, right? Or forming a positive association. But I, I fail to see where consent comes into it if the dog doesn't know what's coming. How can the dog consent to something that it doesn't understand? If you put the ear cleaning solution out and you saturate gauze and your dog scents it and, and runs out of the room, what does that tell you? That's based on previous learning. So, yeah, with some dogs, we'll understand it based on previous learning experience. But if you have a puppy in front of you that's never had his ears cleaned, there's, there's no way that that puppy can consent to something that... It has no conception. If Vito's in front of me, me, okay, I saturate gauze Uh for the first time and I put it on the counter. Uh He smells it and I see him back away. Uh That backing away is a dialogue of him acknowledging through his senses, I smell something new Mm -hmm. and I'm now adjusting to it. Mm -hmm. But the average dog owner might not read that, grab the gauze Mm -hmm. anyway, and then punish Vito for backing away by still cleaning his ear. So however you define consent, uh-huh. consent for Vito with him being, I smell the gauze uh-huh. and still stationing in front of me, mm. I would click and treat. Mm. Then I would put the saturated gauze in my hand. He doesn't back away. He's smelling. Nick, he's leaning forward. Mm. He's engaged in the session. These are the nuances that I learned as an exotic animal trainer of how we would slowly teach a husbandry procedure. Mm. But the average dog owner, you know, they don't they don't know anything different. And they flood their dog in front of them mm. or their cat mm. or their horse. And this is where our neat job mm. as trainers show them the subtlety versus, you know, for the average dog owner, it's like, well, consent. And they're like, can you just explain to me why my puppy's running out of the room? Yeah, yeah, we're just geeking we'll, out here, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so... I think our language... That's what I find strange, it's the choice of language, because isn't this all just proofing? What do you mean by proofing? Well, if if we're going about this... Well, I guess it depends on how you go about it. But if we're going about this... Exactly! (laughs) This this, This is why this is a meaty conversation. This is so good. Right, I hear there's like labels like consent put into it where say that there's, I know that we have to, we're just dealing in hypotheticals. Say we're doing a chin rest behavior, the dog takes his head off of my hand. 
Now, I wouldn't call that consent. I would just say that that's just proofing. The dog is just uh, not but reached did, criteria. But did, the, but did the dog take their head off of your, whether it's your hand, your lap, your towel, mm. because they're acknowledging an auditory stimulus? Did they hear a dog bark next door? Uh -huh. Did they hear someone open a door? I mean, there's there's so many neat things mm. about this where, like... Um, so how does that, how does that change things? You know, when things? I... When I, uh, how does that change things? How? Right. So if if we're doing um, if we're doing the chin rest behavior, and say we're handling the dog, right, or we're looking in the dog's ear and it moves its head off of my hand, now mm -hmm. how is that not proofing but consent, or withdrawing well, consent? These are the neat nuances that I think are fun to work through. Um, is if I'm if I'm cleaning Santino's ear in a chin rest and he backs away, I'm going to pause for a second and I'm going to watch his body language. Is he alerting to a sound that he heard behind mm -hmm. him? Is he air scenting? Mm -hmm. I mean, what is he offering? So then I'll say, you know what? Why don't we go to something more simple and fluent? I'm going to cue other behaviors. Let's do your spin and your, you know, some some fun tricks. Um, I like to do a reset where I will toss a treat away. You know, you'll probably see these in my videos. And then I wait and I say, you know what? Do you want to come back? Or for some dogs, do you have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> like Vito is very clear when he's done training, he has a specific bark. That means I got to poop. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, you were doing wonderful with your targeting games. Um, but all of a sudden he gets up and he starts to sniff the ground. I'll, I will stop the session and go, you know what? You need to go to the bathroom. And I'm not like, listen, we need to get one more chin rest. Mm -hmm. We, you know, mm -hmm. you know, we need to double back. Uh -huh. It's that neat element of flexibility mm -hmm. that I think weaves into these fun discussions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, Eva Bertelson and Emily Johnson Bay, um, Peggy Hogan, they, um, they talk about the term like a start button. Mm -hmm. um, you know, However you want to word this is, oh, it's so neat to see all of these peripheral discussions happening because I think what's happening is we're learning how to read body language better with ever, whatever species uh -huh. that we're working with and with the handler. Well, are, are, are so, we learning to read body language better or are we just kind of finding a hack around it through differential reinforcement, right, by putting our dog into it, by by giving our dog a behavior like a chin rest or a hand touch, are we, and I'm not criticizing this because I love it, right? I, I actually do that with my own dogs. Um, but are, are we almost taking the need to observe the dog out of it? Because, well, now if my dog takes his nose off of my hand, that means I stop, right? So I don't have to watch my dog's body language other than that movement, right? It's not like I have to watch but, my dog withdraw or move away or... Yeah. But you know what? That that brings up another important point that that depends on the skill level of the person working with that animal. Super. Yeah, I agree. Right. So, you know, sometimes you have a trainer who maybe hasn't been training that long, but they think that they have a thick knowledge uh -huh. base. But someone more experienced would watch that. And, th and this is what I love about my mm. mentors. I'm sending them videos all the time, like privately. Mm. And we're always going back and forth, having meaty training discussions. Um, this is where mentoring, studying with, 
attending seminars of, mm. going to conferences and listening to really gifted speakers out there, trainers out there that have been doing this, that have such high level precision skills that kind of blow your mind and go, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about it that way. Mm. And so, you know, this is why, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always grateful to go on podcasts and I'm so grateful to be chatting with you because um, there's, there's an, there's an important need for flexibility for the trainer to have with the animal in front of them. And I think um, some of the best trainers that I know are the ones saying, I still don't know it all and I'm still learning and I'm still mentoring with this person or doing this class with this person. And rather than just be like, no, this is it. This is consent. This it's not black and white. It is not black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, these conversations are, are what I love having when I teach seminars or hands-on workshops because we need we need to be flexible or um, as Dr. Friedman says, you know, behavior is the study of one. It's 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 that learner in front of you at that moment under those conditions. Um, well, you you mentioned a few and, th- and this, things I wanted to come back to because we we. You reminded me of, um, I think it was you I heard talk about uh, behavioral momentum. Is that right? Or am I getting myself confused? Um, no, no, yes. And I will again bridge that back to what learning behavioral momentum in my career from Ken Ramirez and then Dr. Friedman. But Ken would call it ping-ponging. Uh-huh. So we would, we would cue the animal to do simple, fluent behaviors with low latency and speed and good precision. Mm-hmm. And then we would slowly build up, um, raising our criteria, and then we would go back to ping-ponging or building up that behavior momentum, and then we would raise the criteria a little bit higher and then do that dance. So I want to give credit to them. Well, I think after I – did you – I think you brought that up on Hannah's podcast, I want to say. I think I did. And after listening to that, which was quite a while back now – I started experimenting with that because I'd never done it before and I found it extremely helpful. So f- thank, thank you. you for that. Um, and I'm, I'm, nice job on your part. <laughs> and I'm wondering if, uh, if people, if you have any other kind of things like that, tips or, or things that people might not do it, be, be doing in their husbandry training that could, could really help them out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a good success point would be to coach the handler to write down a plan and describe one specific part of whatever that husbandry behavior is, because I'm sure it's thick and meaty and dense and has a lot of fine criteria, right? What one step needs work? And... What I enjoy is when my students, so to speak, will send me video and they'll say, hey, you know, can you watch this? And this is what I'm observing, but can you put your eyes on this? And when I watch it and I'll say, wow, that was that was really good. Um, You made a good decision here. Really thoughtful approach there. Uh, I'm curious about this. And I think 
to be open and a safe place to, to, to ask a friend or colleague to watch your training, but be open for the feedback. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's no fun when someone says, Laura, can you watch this video and put your eyes on it? But then I'll come back with like honest feedback, but then they don't want that honest feedback. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) which doesn't happen often. It really doesn't happen often. I mean, if someone asks me, they're like, no, tell me what to do. So you were saying you pick out one thing out of, out of it, or they pick out one thing. Um, both I think is, is a good launching point because I know what I see through my skilled eyes, but I want them to pick out one thing with their eyes, where they're at and their, um, education as a trainer with the skill set that they have, because that then shows me, um, what they're seeing at that time based on their knowledge base. Uh, and, and that's something where I swing back to my mentors where they will they will describe what they see, but then they ask me to break down the session. They ask me to describe it. They ask me to describe, you know, what what were the cues, what were the antecedents? What 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 was your goal behavior? Um I put a video out yesterday and, and by the way, it takes a lot to put video out there on social media, like a lot. So for those of you that kind of take a deep breath and then hit send and then like kind of hide behind a wall because you're afraid tomatoes are going to get thrown at you, um, you know, it, it takes a lot for people to put their videos out there. So for those that do, good for you for feeling safe enough to do it um, and I just want to say way to go to those people that are offering honest feedback that's reinforcing but also constructive. Um, if I ever see my colleague put a training video out, like like out like publicly, I'm showing my cell phone, and I really have like oh, and I'm I, you know and I'm like doing this, I'm kind of like biting my mm-hmm. nail, going oh I don't know about that decision. I will send them a private yes, message. Yes, that's an important I, distinction. I will, I will go privately and say, man, you know, thanks for sharing that video. I do have a question, and if you're receptive to it, can I ask you in this private forum to afford that private discussion without, you know, because everyone's got an opinion, right, mm-hmm. on social media. Because that's where I enjoy it. And then hopefully then they find that reinforcing and go, thank you for reaching out privately. This was my thought process. Um, so swinging back to it is, um, is to ask yourself, what is the goal behavior? And videotape yourself, watch you and the animal, and reach out to a mentor, like one or two, under certain conditions to say, this is what I was working at. Oh, so this is what I did yesterday. So um, our puppy, Vito, um, overnight, he sleeps in our bed with our other Ridgeback and our two cats. And at night, he's sound asleep, and the cats literally will curl up next to him, and, you know, everyone's asleep. But during the day, he's a six-month-old hunting dog who's now six months old and in pre-adolescence and all paws blazing, 
and we want his play style to be safe around the cats. So I thought, I'm just going to put a video out and just show people what we're working on. And I did my antecedent arrangement, and Topolina had her kitty hammock, and I had a gate, and I was working on Vito um, offering, not barking or jumping towards her, anything, stationing, stand in front of me, look at me, offer a mat. Um, to me, those all stem into his husbandry goals, because his life is going to be centered around all these distractions when me or my husband are doing nail trims, ear cleaning, when I'm practicing his blood draws at home, which two cats are going to be running around him eventually? Topolina and Lucia. So I want him to show me what he's comfortable with, that when I'm working on a blood draw position or his chin rest, and I'm, I'm pointing because I got Topolina right there by the sunshine on by my other desk, when Topolina comes running in, all paws blazing, and he goes, oh, my God, there's a cat. I don't want him to learn that Topolina means aversive outcomes. I want him to learn there's a cat, pause, the cat is a cue to look back at you. Yes, it is. Good job. Click and treat. Because you know what? There's cats meowing in the vet clinic. There's tons of things happening in that environment. That's what I mean by husbandry is in so many different contexts. Well, what does God, what I is, answer your question? What is, yeah, it does. Thank you. <laughs> what, is your, what is your vet's reaction when you come in and you just sh showcase, well, obviously you don't, yeah, I'm not saying that you, you put on a theater show, but like, you know, you go in and, and you just nail it with your uh, training. What is the vet's reaction? Okay. Uh, first of all, I don't always nail it. <laughs> it's like, I mean, let's be honest. Here. There are, there are times where I'm like, we're just gonna we're just gonna leave the vet clinic now <laughs> for whatever reason. You know, maybe there was another dog that lunged at at, at my dog, or um, so yeah. You know, nothing. It's not all smooth in my world. Trust me, it's all it's all neat learning experiences. Um, but what I am grateful for is my vet team is receptive to my discussions with them about what I want to do and why. Um, and I will, like even with Vito, um, I told our current vet and his vet techs, I said, he's only 60 pounds and he's only six months. I don't want him to learn that biting you will make things stop. I want him to learn to express his body language more subtly and that we're going to listen to it. And then I kind of held my breath, and they were like, thank you for saying that. We are, we are helping you. Swing by any time. Swing by, put him on the scale. We'll, you know, we'll give him treats if he wants it, and then leave. Um, I don't make it a um, – how can I put this? I guess I just talk to the – to the domestic vets like I do with the zoo and aquarium vets. Mm. Like my goal is to make your job less stressful. This is what we're working on at home. What does the behavior look like when you need to inject Vito? Where are you going to inject him? Cause I'm going to practice that at home this week before you inject him next week. And I just talked to them like that. And they're like, Oh, we're going to do the injection right front shoulder for the vaccination. Great. I'm going to practice that at home. Um, can I swing him in for a couple practice injections? I'm happy to pay for your time. And they're like, yeah, okay. Wow. Like, I don't I don't make it a, is it okay yeah, yeah. if we do this? 
<laughs> You're telling me you, you don't feel like a bit of a badass having <laughs> having him just completely accept the injection where, you know, they're used to wrestling the dog down. Uh, you know, what I have found enjoyable, what I have found enjoyable is when, when my vet team lets me videotape what we're doing or, or share photos, videos on social media, and I will ask them ahead of time, even though they always say yes, they'll say, I have my tripod with my camera right there. Can I videotape what you're going to do with my animal and share it on social media? I'm not going to edit it. And they're like, sure. When I share it, they feel so reinforced that I'm showing the process and that what we're working towards. Because, Nick, I would never have a vet team that would ever pin down or scruff my cats or my dogs. Mm. I mean, I just I just wouldn't go there. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was probably exaggerating a bit there. But I think vets are, vets <laughs> are used to having to, you know, having animals resist. And, you know, I think, um, oh, man, we need to thank veterinarians constantly, vet techs, vet staff, the receptionist staff every day for the hard work that they do, groomers, everything, because they they have a very stressful job. And if you're anything like me, here, here's Topolina, if you're anything like me, our pets are our family, and we can be a little... I hover over my animals. I I want to make sure that they feel as comfortable and safe as possible. Um, so when I work with our vet team, I want to make sure that I listen to them too and what their standard operating procedures are or their SOPs. You know, um, do you have to take Vito behind the scenes without me with him to do this procedure? And if they say yes... Um, I'll say, um, you know, uh, here's his treats. This is an example. Here's his treats. Here's a can of Easy Cheese. Could you make sure he gets that during the procedure? Sure. And then when they come back, this is I'm just describing, I will ask them, how, you know, how did Vito do? Oh, he did great. What does great look like? Did he growl? Oh, no. He was. He ate the treats. We did this. Okay, great. Um when I do restraint for cats and dogs, uh, when I used to work for um, one of our vet behaviorists here in Chicago, Dr. Sirabasi and Dr. Ballantyne, I would have to restrain cats and dogs. So I would describe to the client, um, if we did the procedure with the client in the room, what I would do, Nick, is I would you know, I'd say, Nick, do you want to be in the room while we do the blood draw on your dog? Okay, let's say you say yes. Okay, this, this is what we're hoping it looks like. Do you feel comfortable giving your dog treats? You'll say yes or no. Uh -huh. Okay, let, let's say you say yes. I'll say, okay, great. Um, Dr. So-and-so would like to do a blood draw on the dog's front leg. So I'm going to kneel next to your dog, give your dog a treat. Boom, you do it. I'm going to gently put my arm over your dog, treat your dog. I'm going to gently hug your dog. Oh, your dog is doing great. Treat your dog. I'm going to gently hold the leg, and I will, and, and it happens fast. Treat, treat, treat. I'm going to hold off the vein, and you know, and then I make the client part of it, and instead of them just watching us, you know, grab their dog and do a quick blood draw. If we took the dog behind the scenes, then I would describe to the client, this is what we're hoping to do. 
we bring the dog because sometimes the clients don't want to be there. Then we come back and I'll say, this is what happened. This is where we did the blood draw. This is how your dog responded. I'm putting it in your file and I type it in. We're going to send this to your referring vet so you have this on file. Simple things like that and describing behavior, it's such a gift for the average dog owner. You want to say hi? <laughs> hi, sorry. Anyway, I feel like I'm passion talking. I'm a, I want to talk less. You talk more. Well, no. I don't even know if what I'm saying is helpful. I was just going to thank you for coming on because uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time and we're, we're uh, over an hour in now. Are we? Okay. So where can people find out more about you? <laughs> oh, they can go to my website, um, lauramonicotorelli.com. Uh, yeah, they could visit there or my Facebook page, um, which it's all linked on my website. So um, hopefully, hopefully this was what you were hoping for. <laughs> we got, we got into some really neat topics here. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. And, um, I really appreciate it. And yeah, that was a lot of fun. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'm sad that we have to, to end it, but oh. Santino says, thanks. Thanks for having us on. Very good. Hey, just before you go, don't forget you can grab all of the links to find out more about Laura by going to www.nickbenger.com slash Laura hyphen Monaco hyphen Torelli. That makes it easier. It means you don't have to trawl the internet looking for those uh, links to find out more about Laura. And also, I want to say that I've started to offer online consultations for dog training problems that you might be struggling with, uh, things that maybe aren't going as you would hope. Maybe you want to send me some videos or just talk over a particular subject. So if you want to book a session with me and, and we jump on a video chat and, and actually go through things, then you can do that by going to www.nickbenger.com slash book. This is a bit of an experiment for me. I'm not sure how long I'm going to be doing it for, or at least in this format. I might make it a little bit more difficult for people to do it at the moment. Just jump over to that link and book a session at which point I will shoot you over an email and we'll kind of have a little bit more of a chat about what we're going to be talking about and, and make sure that you get the uh, best value out of that session um, but in future I might add a questionnaire or I might uh, I might add some kind of hoops to jump through because at the moment it's super accessible but you know we're experimenting right now and we'll see how that goes so to book that session and kind of get the ball rolling with that then go to www.nickbenger.com slash book and that is open to you whether you're a professional dog trainer whether you're a trainer that's training to be a dog trainer or whether you're just a dog owner that wants to know more about training so uh yeah i'm looking forward to geeking out with you guys see ya <laughs>